guy come up afterwards and said he spent most of my sermon figuring out, trying to figure out who the old friend was that we were going to say goodbye to. So, so if you're thinking about the old friend and wondering who that is, just wait till after the sermon and maybe Bill will give you a hint there. So, well, let, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the, the promise that you give us that though we come hungry, that you will fill us, that you will feed us. Though we come thirsty, you will satisfy our thirst. We come wanting to know and needing to know, and you will tell us and give us yourself. We have lots of questions about the lives that we live. Difficulties are in front of us. And yet we know that there's only one place we can come to truly find the hope that anchors our soul. And the promises of God that says, I'm in control of all things. I'm working all things for my glory and for your good. And so we pray this morning as we come, as we open up your word, that, that each of us individually and we corporately would be encouraged to live our lives for you this week, that we would be empowered to do that. We would be reminded of what's really true, no matter what the world might tell us, that we'd be reminded that you are in charge and that you're working out and building your kingdom in and through us, flawed, broken people. And so uh, this time is so important for us to, to, to get our sights clear and to be oriented to, again around the truth of your word and and to worship you. So use this time, use me as your messenger, your word, your spirit to take this and implant it deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Um, it's always interesting when you preach for a week or a couple weeks to figure out exactly where, where to go. Obviously anything in scripture is fair game and is a great place to, to go. I, I happened over the last, a couple weeks ago, took a class. Some of you know that I am still in the middle of my seminary training and uh, spent a, whole, a good chunk of a week in this one passage. And so uh, you'll be glad to know that I have turned a, an hour and a half, 25-point uh, expository commentary into a three-point, 30-minute sermon for you this morning. So uh, when you start, there's so much stuff in this rich passage that we'd love to, to look at, but uh, uh, we're going to see what God does in and through tests this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 of this chapter, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took it and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order 
and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the, its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place of the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. You know, sometimes the most beautiful passages of Scripture can contain some of the most difficult parts of Scripture. And that's indeed the, the passage that we're looking at this morning. This morning, Bruce Walkie said that this is the most theologically difficult passage in the Old Testament. And indeed, the, the challenge that's before us as we look at this is, is to get into the, the real meat of the text of what the text is about but we don't want to stumble over what's on the face of the text, and that's the test that's right in front of us. The test that God gives to Abraham, which should take us by surprise, it should kind of cause us to catch our breath to go, what is it that God has called him to do? Because there's a challenge there that he places. And the, and the charge, the command that Abraham gives to, to Abraham, or that God gives to Abraham is to take his own son and to offer him as a sacrifice back to God. The son that had been promised to God and fulfilled, promised Abraham and fulfilled to him, God commands him to give back to him in the way of his life. And so as we look at this, the, the first step I want to take is before we get into the rest of it, which I think is the point of the text, is, is to answer a couple questions about how do we understand the nature of the test? I don't want us to stumble. I want us to take it lightly, though. And there's a couple of things that might be helpful for us as we look at this. First of all, it's important to note that this is a unique situation in history, in redemptive history. Uh, this is unique of what God is doing in calling Abraham, separating him, and saying it's through you now that my promise of salvation to the world will come. And it's at this critical point in time as he has called Abraham and set him apart and give him a promise of a land and an offspring and a whole blessing that will come through his nation that will come through him to this critical point that we have a test. And there's, there's something special, there's something unique happening here that does not, will not happen again apart from what God will do. So it's a unique situation, it's not normative. We know that from the rest of scripture that God hates child sacrifice and that he is clear about the other nations, the pagan nations that do that regularly, that he hates that. That's not a part of his worship. Also, we know that God, the God that called him to this command is the creator God. He's the one that created all that is. And because of that, he has a kind of prerogative, which we as his creatures can't quite understand, that he would have the prerogative to call Abraham to do this without 
moral criticism by his creatures. And so there's something in that as God and creator and owner and possessor of everything. Also, we as the readers on this side of the cross can see the command from a, through a different kind of lens. We see the, the command to take your son, your one and only son, whom you love, and to sacrifice him through the lens of a God that has done the very thing that he called Abraham to do. And so God has done that, and so we understand it. Okay, what God has commanded him, he himself would do fully and completely. And perhaps the, the most kind of helpful point to some degree is the fact that Isaac's life was never really in danger. There was a command to do this up to the very point of taking his life at which God stops him. And so Isaac's life was never in danger as a pastor we all know named Bill Vogler says that Isaac was the safest person on earth that day. He was not going to be killed that day even though the call and the command brought him right up to the very point of that. And so as we want to get our hands around, okay, the test, and it's challenging for us, it should stop us and say, who is this God that has made this kind of command? We need to understand that it should cause us to, to think, who is it that we're dealing with here? Not quickly to be dismissed, but also not to be a stumbling block to understand what the text is really about. And so if we can make the hurdle to get over the test that God commands, we can begin to now understand what he's doing with this account. And there's two parts I want to take up. One today and the next week I want to look at the other part of it. Today I want to really want to view it through the lens of a test. And if you will, the point of the text we'll talk more about next week. But the setting or what's happening in the text, what I want to look at is the test. It's through the test that God is doing something even bigger. And so this week we're going to look at the test and what we can learn in the way that God tests and tries his people. And next week, we're going to look at what God is ultimately doing. We're going to look at God's provision that's seen in this passage through which God reveals and points towards his intentions, certainly his son. So as we talk about the test uh, that we want to see, we want to ask the question, what is the nature, what's the characteristics of the tests that God gives? Well, I need to back up just a little bit to look at this passage in the context. The context is really, there's a whole bunch there, but if you, if you would, between chapter 12 and 22 in the book of Genesis, we have the account of Abraham. It begins in 12 when God comes to him and sets him apart. First three verses, he gives him promises, promises of a land and promises of offspring and a nation and a blessing that would come to all the nations through him. The very end of the narrative, at the end of this chapter in 22, at the following the test that he gives him, the same promises that God gives in the first three verses of chapter 12, he gives them again, except he heightens them. And there's an intensified form of the promises. We'll talk more about them. But that's the bracket of the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis that, that, that tells us about him that's there. And the picture of God coming to Abraham is, is a picture of a sovereign. It's a picture of a king coming and initiating with a subject and establishing a relationship with him by making the promises to him. In chapter 15, there's an oath that God takes to him. He says, I promise these things to you, a land and offspring that you will have. And then in 15, he makes an oath. He says, if indeed these promises don't come true, I will cease to be God. And then in 17, God, the sovereign, comes and says, now I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant, a sign of the promise in the form of circumcision that will mark all those who are yours. 
And so we have a promise in 12 and we have this oath in 15. We have the sign of the covenant that's in 17. And then in 21, about some 25 years after God has initiated with Abraham, we still have no son. Abraham is 99 years old and he comes to God and says, I know that you've made this promise, but I still have no son. My wife is 90. The chances of having children are not good. Not even with medication. And, and so you have this kind of thing going on. And then 21, God says, I will give you a son. A year from this time, I will give you a son. And indeed, at 100 years old and 90 years old, they have a child. And his name is Isaac, which means laughter. Amazing to think. And so the fulfillment of the promise, the oath that God had given to them. And then we have the test in verse 22. So if you will, the framework of this, this narrative is there's a promise. There's an oath that God gives. There's a sign of that covenant. And then there's a fulfillment of the son. And then 22, there's a test. And then it concludes again with the promise that God gives. And all this reminds us that this is a sovereign. It's coming to Abraham who's established a relationship with him and is in the process of doing something in his life. And he is revealing something to Abraham and to all those who would come from Abraham. The framework reminds us that the relationship is, is not between peers, but between a sovereign king and one who is one of his creation, through whom his blessings will come. As we come to the passage, we see that after these things in verse 1, the author tells us it's in the context of all these things that God is doing that the test comes. And we want to remember, it's important for us, that God does not test in the context of a vacuum. He does not test out of nowhere. The tests that God comes are always follow instruction. They always follow teaching about himself. They always follow promises that he's given. And so the instructor says there's a test, but it's after 20, at this point actually in 22, probably 40 years of God intervening and working in the life of Abraham. And so it's in this context that the test comes. And the author tells us that there is a test. And so it softens the blow for us. He says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And as the reader, we go, oh, there's a test coming. I wonder what he's going to do. And then our breath is taken as we go, he's going to do that? He's going to require that of Abraham? But the author wants us to know that this is a test that God has. And it has a particular kind of significance Abraham, though, is quick, even though we're not told a whole lot about what it might feel like to have your only son, the one that you love, that the command is to take and to sacrifice him to God, the one who's given this son to you. But we, can't, but we can imagine that the challenge is there. But Abraham, in his behavior and his response, is quick. He says, so he went, and he began to prepare for the journey that he would have to this place, this three-day journey. And as he shows up to the place, he leaves a couple of his servant. And Isaac and Abraham ascend the hill together, the last leg of the journey, just them two. And you can imagine what that would have been like. It's kind of awkward. The only glimpse we have into the conversation is the confusion you can hear in the voice of Isaac going, you know, Dad, we've got a knife and we've got, a, we've got the fire here and we've even got wood on my back, but we're missing something. And, 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 and certainly as, as Abraham seeks to answer him, he just says, well, God will provide and then in, in verse 9, you see the, the whole storyline begin to slow down as you, they show up in the place on the mountain on the top and he stacks and orders the wood. 
And then he binds his son to prepare him for the sacrifice. And then he places him on the altar. And then the, the narrative takes us even to the point of we see the knife raised. Abraham's preparation and even his determination to worship God by doing something that seemed almost unthinkable. By taking the life of his own son in the command and to the obedience of God. And it's at that point in the narrative that we have the, the angel Lord stepping in and says, Stop. Abraham, you don't have to go any farther. Now I know that you fear me. And then we have God providing a substitute, a sacrifice in this picture. The first picture, explicit picture of a, a substitute. And then you have the, the promises of God that, that he reiterates to Abraham at the very end of this text. And so this gives us an outlay of the text. And it's interesting, it's very silent when it comes to emotion. It tells us very little about what it must have felt like to be Abraham or to be Isaac for that matter. And you see that the point of the text isn't exactly the emotion of the day, although we can imagine that it's certainly some appropriateness to go, man, that would be really, really hard. But the point is what God is doing in and through this account, in and through this test, in, in giving a picture of God's provision and what he does in the midst of a test. And so the question, back to the question of the test, is what is God doing through the test? What are characteristics of the test? And the challenge for us today, as we think about the tests and the trials and the difficulties in the life, in our lives that we have had and that we will have, because they're guaranteed, it's to ask the question, how is it that we honor or how is it that we dishonor God in our responses to those difficulties that are brought into our lives. Because we understand, because God is sovereign, that there's nothing ever that's accidental. There's nothing that's random. There's nothing that is not used by God in the context of our lives for his good. Because he is at work in each of our lives. And so he is using these tests. Whether we know them to be explicit, whether in this account, like he says, God tested Abraham, or we know implicitly, we know, we assume that everything difficult that comes into our lives, we know it's a part of what God is doing. That nothing is wasted in his economy. And so this passage, as we look at the test, has great uh, application for us today. Because we want to honor God, right? We want to show him to be king. And indeed we do that in our responses in the midst of those times where nothing else seems to make sense. Well, there's three characteristics I want to pull from this text and another passage of Scripture that characterizes the tests that God gives to his people and the point of the tests. And the first one is that a test will push us beyond the boundaries of our own perspective and our own understanding. That the test that God brings into our lives will push us. He pushes Abraham. He pushes his people beyond the boundaries of what we can see or what we understand. That increases the necessity for faith to see and apprehend that which our physical eyes cannot see. Looking back at this scenario and the situation, the only word that would seem to describe how Abraham would have seen this situation and the command that God would have given him would seem absurd. It seemed illogical. It seemed unreasonable that God who had given him this promise and then fulfilled it at 100 years old would now ask him and require him to take his life. It would seem absurd not to mention how difficult what God had called him to do. And yet that's the situation in which Abraham finds himself. The God who has proven himself to him over 40 years and the son who has been provided by him completely and God says, I want you to take his life. And that's the challenge. And so the difficulty that is there, and the same is true for us. 
the, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, the situations that we didn't ask for all of a sudden happen upon us. And we go, this just doesn't make any sense. I thought God was calling me here, but I find myself here. How did I get here? And our eyes and our own understanding fail because they only go so far. And the test is necessary to move us beyond what we can see and how we understand so that our faith will, be grow, will grow and be expanded. We see that, that Abraham obeys wholeheartedly. And he sees what he is doing to, for, to God, if you will, is worship. In the midst of this challenge and this difficulty is worship. He says, we're going, we're going to go worship and we hear in the voice of God this, this call, and we see that Abraham fully obeys. It pushes us. It pushed him beyond what, was understand, what he could understand. This situation is unique, okay? The, the call and the command is unique to take your own son in this situation. But what is not unique, what is normative in this passage for us, is the faith that we see exercised. What is normative and descriptive of the Christian life is the radical nature of the faith we see lived out by Abraham. Because faith is always assumes there's a situation that I don't understand or my eyes won't tell me exactly all that I need to know. And so that if you will, eyes of faith are required to be able to see, to move forward in obedience of, to God. The nature of biblical faith is seen especially in these kinds of circumstances. Indeed, faith is seen completely when every visible surety is taken away. And all that we have in front of us is what our physical eyes and our own understanding can't see and can't get a hold of. And that's the situation that Abraham is in. That's the situation that God brings us to, which requires us now to believe and to trust at a different level. I have had the opportunity over the course of my fatherhood experience with four kids now to help them learn how to ride a bike. And it's just a great experience. I love doing it. Lots of exercise, you know, when you're doing that. But, you know, you start when you're helping them ride a bike with what? You know, you put training wheels on a bike, and you, and you send them down, and they've got the training wheels on and their, their bike. And in using the training wheels, they're going through the motions of biking, right? They're pedaling. They're steering a bike. They're, they're, they're going through all the motions of biking. But the, the secret... And I'm glad all the kids have left. But the dirty little secret about training wheels is that if you have training wheels on, you're really not riding a bike. You're really not biking until the training wheels come off. And it's at that point you experience what it really means to bike. And you really don't know how to unless you take off the training wheels. Okay? First-hand experience here. This is what's taken place. God teaches us, if you will, and he, he gives us his experience and he gives us promises and he's present with us in our lives in lots of different ways that we can see and are tangible and are good. But there are critical moments and times where God says, now we're going to take off the training wheels. Now I'm going to remove from you the things that you can see that seem to be propping you up. And now I want you to ride. And it's in those points and times that we really learn what it means to walk with God. We really learn what it means not to just go through the motions. Again, we need those periods of time. But once they're off, and Abraham is in a situation here, if you will, the training wheels have been taken off. There's nothing he can depend on except for what God has said and the promises that he's given. And that's where we are in this. This is what 
these circumstances are. This is what these, these tests do in our lives. They push us beyond our understanding, beyond our own perspective, so that faith grows. But it doesn't stop there. The test, uh, through the test, one comes to a deeper maturity and a higher point in their walk with God. Grows our faith. As our faith grows, God's sovereignty, we grow. As we find ourselves in the circumstances where nothing else seems to make sense and yet we trust, we learn how to walk with God. We learn what faith really is. As faith is exercised, it does something in our lives. Abraham in this setting is approved by God. And the promises at the end of the chapter are like excited promises that God gives. He says, I've given you these promises once, but I'm going to give you again because I'm so thrilled about what I'm doing in your life, about the obedience that I see. These promises are reiterated that we see there. The test, instead of breaking Abraham, brings him to the summit of his lifelong walk with him. It doesn't break him. It builds him. It brings maturity. It brings an understanding and a knowledge of God that can only be experienced in those kinds of settings. He experiences God's grace and his provision in a whole new way that he had not experienced before. The test is always tied to our growth and our maturity. It can't not. The means of God, the way that he works, the schemes of God in our own life require circumstances in which everything else, the legs are taken off, the, the training wheels are off, and he says, now ride and trust me. The tests that God walks us through reveal and refine our character. It reveals what we really are, and it refines who we are. If you'll turn with me to James chapter 1, number of passages that... that illustrate and instruct us on the role and place of testing in our growth. James 1 verses 2 through 4. Interesting way to start a letter, by the way. Count it all joy, my brothers. I hear pages still turning. So. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why is it that we take joy in our trials and our difficulties? Because it's the testing, it's the difficulties, the challenges of our faith that produces perseverance or steadfastness. And it's perseverance or steadfastness that actually grows us into the kind of maturity that God desires for us. I don't understand why this charge, this challenge for Abraham, this command was necessary for him, but it was necessary in God's sovereignty to prepare him and to through him these blessings would come. The same is true for each of us, that the challenges and the testing that's there produces something by God's grace that brings us to a point in which God wants us to be. You can turn over a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, again, near the beginning of the, as Peter writes to a group of churches that are experiencing these kinds of trials to a, to a great degree for their faith. Verses 6 and 7, he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, again, there's joy that comes in the midst of these trials because the trials, the difficulties are producing a tested genuineness that has great value. 
a value that we can't even quite quantify. It's a kind of value that's seen in the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. Another passage you can look up, it's one that might be familiar. It was connected to a reading earlier in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces proven character and proven character produces hope in our lives. And again, you see the necessity of testing and difficulties in building something in us. And indeed, that's what's taking place in the midst of our lives. The test expand our faith, our perspective. It grows us in maturity. And it's in those settings that we are becoming the sorts of people that God desires for us to be. C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, is a fascinating um, account. And if you've read the story, it's a, basically it's the letters from a senior tempter demon named Screwtape who's writing to his nephew, uh, Wormwood, about how to better tempt um, a Christian, how to work in his life to get him to, to do. And so I'm going to read a short section from one of the chapters. It's the trough and peak periods where he's describing the difference between trough periods of our lives, the challenges and the peak periods. So don't be confused. The enemy in this setting, the enemy is uh, God, the enemy, and then the, the father, the, the one on their side below is, uh, happens to be uh, our enemy. So he's instructing him, and I want you to listen how he puts this about the role of trough or difficult periods in our lives. And he writes, and that's where the trough periods come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to the human soul in any degree he chooses at that moment, at any moment. But you see now that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish, he can only woo, for his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and to have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves, merely to cancel them or assimilate them, will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy con conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives he leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. It's in these periods of time that we look up and we say, God, I don't see you. I don't see your presence. I don't feel your hand. I don't know that you're here. There's no training wheels now. But it's in those periods of time that we're becoming the kinds of people, the understanding what real faith is, understanding and truly knowing the ways of God. We're becoming the sorts of people that he desires us to be. And tests are necessary 
They stretch our faith. They grow us and deepen us in our maturity. They heighten and raise our understanding and our knowledge of God and the ways that he works in our lives. But what God is doing in and through this account and in the account of our own trials in our lives is more than just in our life, although that is significant and it's what we need. There's something more in the text. Faith is expanded. Maturity increased. Understanding of God the third thing that I want to pull out of this I think is important for us is to see that God enjoy and delights in the obedience of his people. That God enjoy and delights in our obedience, in our trusting in him, in those situations where it looks like he's off the chart, he's off the radar screen of our lives, but yet we still obey. It's through the test that our trust and our obedience is experienced and enjoyed by God he delights in the faithfulness that he has produced in our lives. He enjoys that. In verse 12 is one of the, another one of those enigmatic kind of verses that's difficult to exactly get our hands around when God says it. After he, he stops him from, from, um, from killing uh, Isaac, the angel of the Lord, the Lord says to him, Don't lay, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. God himself says, now I know that you fear God. And when we need to ask the question, what does it mean when God says, now I know? And it's important to know that what it doesn't mean is that he has learned something new or learned something that he didn't know before. God has not all of a sudden learned a new fact about Abraham. He has not been on the sidelines, wringing his hands, wondering the outcome of this test. He has known all along what the outcome will be. So the question is, why is this language used? Why is it that God says, now I know that you fear God? And the beauty of this, it's used at different points throughout Scripture, where God veils his omniscience. He veils what he knows in a kind of language as he relates to us that gives value and meaning to our behavior. It gives value and meaning to our obedience and our responses to him. It's language that deepens and enriches, enriches what's just taken place in the situation. You have Abraham who has obeyed God to the very end. He has stopped him and says, now I know, now I see, now I have enjoyed and experienced what you're doing. What we see here in this passage is God who's experiencing and enjoying the sacrificial worship of Abraham. We see God who's taking delight in his rule and his reign being manifest. His rule being seen in the obedience of his people. God is sovereign, but how is that sovereignty seen? It's seen in the way that we respond to him and the way we live out the commands that he's given to us. In the way that we trust him. This is God being glorified and his glory being manifested through our obedience, through Abraham's obedience, even in an extraordinary kind of situation. And so God is enjoying, God is taking delight in this obedience. It's in a very obedience that he brought about, that he cultivated over years, of giving him promises, of living in his life and showing him who he was. But it was nonetheless an obedience that was lived out and responded by Abraham. What, the question we might ask is, what else would have God said? If he didn't say, now I know, what he might have said, you know, I already knew you're going to do that. I was aware that you're going to do that, and it doesn't validate what's just taken place. Unless we fall off into the ditch of this kind of fatalistic idea that our actions, our behavior, our responses to God means nothing, 
we need to understand that we have the great privilege of participating with God by obeying him. We have a great privilege of participating with him through our trust and obedience. And as we do that, we put on display his greatness. Because he's the instructor, we're the student. And when we trust him and we live that out, we show him to be great. We see that our faith is expanded in the midst of test. Our maturity is deepened. Our understanding of God grows. We see that God delights in the obedience that he produces in us. It's very similar to a parent-child relationship, right? As we instruct, you instruct your child to say, don't do that and do this, and you see them obey you. At the very same time, the parent is honored, the child benefits. Both things are taking place. And in the midst of the test, we show God to be great as we, as we honor him. It pushes us beyond what we can see, grows us and deepens us. That is really the nature of the Christian life. It's really the nature of it, and it's the way that God operates. And in some respects, we would say there's no other way that he can do that. But lest we think, and we walk out of here, and we think that the message of this text is, try harder to be like Abraham. Try harder to obey like Abraham. That's not the message of the text. The message of the text is to trust in the God of Abraham. To trust in the promises of the God of Abraham. The promises that are like an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. That's what he calls us to. Because that's ultimately who we're depending on. That's ultimately who we trust in. If you read the account of Abraham, you'll find several occurrences of failure. Guess what? That describes our life too. There is failure. There will be failure in our life. But the beauty of the gospel, that it's built upon the promises of God, it's not built on our faithfulness, but it's built solidly upon his and so we rest ourselves in him. And we have a great hope that in the course of tests and difficulties and trials that our faith will grow. That we will become mature by his grace. And that we will bring glory to him. And that at the right moment when he calls us and commands us to, to respond to him in obedience. That we will be able to do that because of what he's done in our lives. And in that moment we will show him to be great by passing the test that he's given us. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that there's some explanation to the difficulties that we have. That it is not random. They are not accidents of nature. They are not outside of your control. They're not even experiments that you're kind of running on your creatures. They are ways in which you sovereignly bring about your glory in our lives. Thanks for this account, this extraordinary, unique circumstance that puts on display the normative, radical nature of Christian faith. Father, help us to never forget your ways and how you operate. And in those moments when we're relying on the things that we can see and you pull them from out from underneath us, help us to remember, oh yeah, this is what God does. He wants me to trust him. This is hard. This hurts at times. And yet we entrust ourselves to you, a good God, who has proved yourself faithful over the years, will prove yourself faithful for eternity. So we entrust ourselves to you as people individually and corporately. Would you do this in our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.